Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with extended clips. Welcome to Extended Clip. It is episode 261. I am one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. We are back for part two of our 2023 year in review. If you did not catch part one, guess what? It's the same thing. Well, it's not the same episode. It's just uh, we're continuing. Uh, go back to part one. It's on Patreon. ExtendedClip.com. No. Patreon.com slash extended underscore clip. I'll make ExtendedClip.com one of these days. I tell you what. When we go daddy, we got to hit go daddy to get the ExtendedClip.com. go cities.com <laughs> exactly that's the vision www.godaddy.extendedclip.angelfire.geocities.com at hotmail.com is how you reach extended clip uh it is our 2023 year in review coming right back at you uh so as, as we said, uh, we're, we're just talking about the movies that we watched this year that we liked. We're not talking about new movies. We'll get to that eventually. But we are historians. We're not we're not film journalists. Uh, Jesus Christ. We're not <laughs> film journalists going out to the new release. Did you see that? I just like dropped my phone and it banged on this trash can that I'm using as a mic stand really hard. <laughs> yeah, I'm using a trash can as a mic stand. I'm definitely not poor right now. Uh, so anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about the best movies we saw this year we've already talked about eric romare we've already talked about uh jean-claude brisseau we've already talked we've talked about too many french people too many french yeah. people no french people it's this a episode very french year yeah no fucking frenchies this episode okay I mean, we we went hard for the French earlier, and now now we're like maybe we went. We too did, hard. we maybe. did, and guess what? I I might take that back. I might I might do a Jean Renoir. Who knows? But uh, so we are back to talking with our friends about the best movies we watched this year. And uh, before we get into our picks, let's go back to one of our friends. Hi everyone, it's your old friend Will Sloan. People have been beating down my door asking me, Will. What was your favorite first-time viewing of a classic movie in the year 2023? <laughs> of course, I could have shared this information with any number of high-profile media brands, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, CNN, but instead, I opted for Extended Clip, the venue of the future. I would like to direct everyone's attention to a 1966 experimental film called Fat Feet. It is largely the brainchild of a man credited as Red Grooms, and also featuring some uncredited art directorial contributions by George Kuchar. It's difficult to describe. It's a sort of city symphony where the city is made out of cardboard. It combines live-action actors with enormous two-dimensional fake streets and apartments, as well as a lot of stop-motion animation. It feels a little like a Terry Gilliam cartoon come to life. And best of all, it's only 19 minutes long and can be seen on Vimeo right now. I'd like to conclude by saying, I've been told the Extended Clip podcast has waged a largely one-sided feud with the very popular Blank Check podcast. 
I'd like to take this opportunity to plant my flag in the sand. If I were invited on the Blank Check podcast, I would say yes, in a heartbeat. I would throw Eddie under the bus as quickly as humanly possible. I think it's important to look out for number one, and I'm sure my friends at Extended Clip would understand that. Griffin, David, I have no beef with you. In conclusion, thanks again to Eddie, JT, and Malcolm for this moment of their time. Happy 2024. Wow. Thanks a lot. From uh, Will Sloan, who I believe will be on the next episode of Extended Clip, uh, to talk about James Toback, his personal hero, uh, as revealed (laughs) on uh, the next episode. Yeah, for a second, I thought you said he's going to be on the next episode of Blank Check. I was like, oh, good. I'll listen because I'm a listener. I'm a known listener now. So. Yeah. Yeah. People have been really like messaging me, like, hey, when Malcolm said that he listened to Blank Check and it wasn't bad, it really opened things up for me. And I'm like, dude, don't tell me that. That's the fourth dimension of listening to Extended Clip. You know, why are you messaging me that? Don't look, I'm just, I'm putting it out there. Don't message me that. Come on, guys. (laughs) I don't like that. That's cool. I like that they don't, they don't message me, but they message you, you know, with my, about you. Yeah. It's, that's, I like that. (laughs) You know, and pass it on. They're messaging me saying, that malcolm guy is not bad (laughs) he's really improved over the past year (laughs) yeah (laughs) it seems like malcolm's in a good place these days (laughs) people love malcolm he's the breakout star oh well now now i'm blushing you guys are the breakout stars (laughs) well i'm not the breakout star i am the star (laughs) okay all right I'm just here having a good time. We're all stars. We're all, we're all like great all podcast the prospects. stars are here. We're, we're, we're such great talents. That's why people are listening. Fair that enough. That is true. I think that's right. They love us. Bodu Saved from Drowning is a movie that I watched maybe four or five years ago, but it's one that I watched it like late at night and I just knew it was great, but it didn't really sink in for me. And then I watched it again. Uh, earlier this year and uh, Nate made fun of me because I was talking about uh, like that that's how I spent my night you know I could have done all the things in the world but I watched a movie about a French bum who falls in a lake and and it's a hundred years old you know what that's how I want to live my life I don't care about going to the bar I I don't care about any of that I'm gonna watch a movie about a French bum who falls in a lake (laughs) but really uh, Renoir's approach to the always strange and semi-condescending relationship of the wealthy helping out the downtrodden uh, is so fascinating in this movie. And I, I talked about this with a movie like Spanglish, where, uh, you know, that, that's a theme that's just eternal in cinema and any kind of fictional, uh, you know, art or whatever uh or non-fiction i guess but i feel like you know nearly a hundred years ago now renoir is more incisive and satirical and uh playful but also more revealing about that those kind of relationships than we usually get and don't get me wrong something like spanglish is beautiful it's one of my favorite movies but it's like a two plus hour very messy dramatic movie in a good way you know it's just the emotions are very messy and whatnot whereas i think bodu saved from drowning uh and look i'm not you know uh, breaking new ground on planet cinema saying that uh, Bodu saved from drowning is better than Spanglish. <laughs> Update your leaderboards. <laughs> use it as a comp for two of my favorite movies. Yeah. You know, these are two of my favorite movies here. Uh, I, I just feel like the way that Bodu operates 
feels like the Bible for that kind of story in movies. And Renoir's stylistic bag is just so expansive. It's so ridiculous. He's just miles ahead of the rest of French cinema in the 30s. And that's not to put anyone else down. Like, I, I really like a lot of 30s French cinema I've seen. But Renoir is just like, I think probably the best filmmaker of the 30s, even better than Ford or the early Ozu stuff or Sternberg. Like, I, I really do think that the the humanism of his dramas uh, comes through in a way that also has a lot to do with French identity and his own identity as the son of an artist. He's the son of one of the great painters of all time, you know? Uh, and, and so his dad was around when cinema was a brand new medium. And now he's an adult. He's like, I'm going to take this brand new medium and, you know, do my thing with it. And I, I just feel like Baudu Saved from Drowning is one of his first, uh, like, just total masterpieces where it really feels like he's not just like etching uh, history for film. It's like, this is one of those films that goes down with the great poems and paintings and sculptures to me, uh, where it's just says something so rich and unique about humanity and takes such a unique aesthetic approach. And the performances, especially by uh, Michelle Simone is just like, Oh my God, next level. Uh, like, it's never been topped, really. So, Bodu Saved from Drowning. Check it out if you haven't. I love that movie, and I love uh, Bodu kind of being maybe the first character of, like, the man who isn't living right, but maybe he's showing society a thing or two about the way he lives, you know, the, the his, yeah. and his antics. Uh, I mean, who doesn't love that type of character? And I, you know, even though I was singing von Sternberg's praises. I don't know if I could definitively say his 30s better than that 30s, but it's like Jean Renoir in the 30s, like his movies are amazing. Like yeah. I, I, some of my favorite movies of all time, like um, Tony in the Lower Depths, like those are movies that stick with me. And a Day uh, in the Country, technically, yeah. like you see 1946 on there, but it's incomplete and was made in the mid 30s. Not to mention the big ones, Rules of the Game and well, of uh, The Grand Illusion, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I haven't, actually, I've, I've seen Rules, I haven't seen Grand Illusion, so I need to check that out, but... Uh, Ooh, Grand with, Illusion uh, app next year? Yeah, that sounds let's good. Let's do it, that dude. Sounds... Let's go back to film school. I love doing the Persona film school app. Let's let's book an appointment there. Um, yeah. But uh, his, his dad being a great painter, uh, you know, everyone complains about, like, nepotism, babe. Like, I, I wish... I would love to see that, like the the great tradition of like artists being passed down to artists. You know what I mean? I mean, I think they deserve some credit for doing it right, showing the blueprint of the best. That might be the best father son art duo ever. Like, you, you probably have to, you yeah. can't you can't you can't think of someone who who tops that. That um, you know, I I just I kind of I want to see, see more any of that. Uh, films by Johnny Ford Jr. John Ford Jr. <laughs> <laughs> Little Yazzie Ozu. <laughs> Kiki Reichardt. <laughs> the mother-daughter combo. Yeah, no, I want I want more uh, familial teams. In well, I, think, uh, I think the success is doing what uh, th them Renoir boys did, which is swapping mediums. Yeah, like, I think yeah. if you're uh, the Cronenbergs, uh, mm, like the yeah. Dune, like Frank Herbert and his son, do like same medium. You're setting yourself up for disaster. You can continue in art, but I feel like you got to do guy got to blaze a different different medium. I think that's a good point because you kind of have to 
make your way in that own world in a sense, right? So yeah, like uh, David Bowie and Duncan Jones, master of, of music, master of film. <laughs> True, of course. That's that's actually that 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 tops it for me. I take back what I said. <laughs> what about David Bowie if Duncan Robinson was his kid? I don't know. That's just the first. I thought that was what JT was going to say. <laughs> That's the great cross medium. If is if you have an artist and then the artist has a son who's like an athlete. I mean, or the vice versa. That would be sick. That's the dream. That's yeah. like the real dream. Like that would be like and- if if Jean Renoir's kid was like early <laughs> basketball, just like 1950s basketball, putting up wilt numbers. Yeah. That would be the funniest thing ever. Or Bronny gives up basketball to do like an art house film. <laughs> And it's just like, well, I'm at USC, you know, like I might as well, you know, go full-fledged here. The home of Spielbergo. Let's get back to another email because we have so many, it's hard to pace these things. Here's one from our old (laughs) friend, Serge Gainsbourg. What? The the deceased French vocalist? Uh, hello, extended wow. clip. It's your boy. I'm doing air quotes here. Serge Gainsbourg. The best film I watched for the first time this year was Clint Eastwood's A Perfect World, a film comprised of many great moments, perhaps none greater than the one where Kevin Costner assures the boy who is feeling insecure about the size of his penis after being insulted by a criminal that it is a good size for a boy his age. And of course, this would go on to be recreated in the Family Guy episode where Peter is trying to bond with Stewie, so he engages in a penis measuring contest, which he sadly loses. That is the end of the email. Even if he didn't say who it was from, I would know who this was from. <laughs> a known Family Guy historian. Yeah, of yeah. course, of course. <laughs> um, uh, I think we did A Perfect World like when we did our best rep screenings uh, episode a few years ago, like our 2020 episode. I think we talked yeah. about A Perfect World. We've talked about A Perfect World many times. I love it so much. It's probably my favorite Clint Eastwood. I can't. I can't get over it. I really can't. Um, I'm going to go one more here from Andrew, our good friend Andrew, who uh, was the executive producer of our Popeye episode. He says, I'm fortunate enough to live in L.A. and I fill my spare time with visits to the rep theaters. See a lot of movies, so it's hard to narrow down a lot of fate. It's hard to narrow down favorites. But here are some uh, favorite first watches of the year. Body Double. When he grabbed the undies out of the trash can, my mind flashed that (laughs) gif of Nicholson nodding and thought, oh, it's going to be that kind of movie. I saw a ton of De Palmas this year, and he was a big blind spot. Uh, I really like him as a director. Being greaseball myself, it's hard not to love the work of Italian-American directors in the 70s and beyond. Playtime. Saw it twice, loved it both times. I can see why Tati is such a visual touchstone for directors. Fortunate enough to see it on 35 and 70. Also saw a ton of Godard this year. Took a film or two for me to get him, but now I really do and love his movies. What a loss his death was. Yes, it was. And speaking of old masters, I saw several Fellini films for the first time and really enjoyed them. I hope to dive even deeper into his dreamlike world in the future. And last, I'll say that I really loved The Conformist. That's a film that will stay with me for a long time. Saw it for the first time on the day before I turned 34 and again on Liberation Day in Italy. 
there's nothing quite like film, and it does my heart good to discover so many other people interested in the history of the form and to be open-minded about them. I hope to see you at the movies in 2024, sent from my iPhone. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, a a beautiful email from a beautiful yeah. man. We love you. He was. I mean, that was that was a good like uh, like pacing in, in the paragraph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no, yeah exactly. I, trust me, you heard the paragraph breaks in my voice. The dude knows how to write. Like, read his Substack, uh, slouching towards yeah. McDonald's land. Uh, it's it's really good. That might be the top email we've read on the show, just in terms exactly, of formally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, some of the people that write in got to take notes. <laughs> <laughs> they felt your wrath. They we 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 fired at him before. JT, what yeah. is another movie that you want to talk about from this year? Uh, we're talking about another uh, Frenchman here, I guess. <laughs> the, we the love French, the French. We really the do. The French have ruled 2023, as unfortunate as it is. We were totally off the French for like three minutes. <laughs> it was like three minutes. We were like, <laughs> never going to talk about another French director again. <laughs> were you, were you brought Renoir? We're down. We're back in the shit. Um, and uh, I... I don't know this year I wanted to get into a more contemporary art house filmmaker. I feel like that I don't know anytime and I mean there's some names that I want to explore more like I think last uh, episode there was some Petzold talk and like he is definitely someone who's exciting that I've heard a lot of uh, good things but just haven't dived into yet. Uh, but our episode with Nick Newman on Nocturama really lit a fire under my ass uh, about Bertrand Bonello. And uh, I've done a few other Bonello movies this year, and they're all fantastic. I, I'm a big fan. I loved his style, uh, or I love his style so much. The one in particular, I'd say the best of what I've seen so far, uh, is House of Tolerance, uh, about a uh, like brothel at the turn of the century in france and uh i don't know it's a similar style to nocturama kind of like a cold remove but again i wouldn't say that's something that belies or i mean just like there's like still an emotional core i feel like here in following the journey of these prostitutes it's not really much of a journey it's just sort of like okay uh the world is modernizing uh, they're probably going to be driven out of this uh, whorehouse. Uh, what's going to happen here? And uh, you just follow the lives of the characters. It's kind of like a hangout movie in a way. But I feel like something like this, especially when you're tackling uh, sex work, I feel like um, you can get kind of in an area of like, Oh, woe is me, pity these whores, kind of a a, a, a thing <laughs> yes. where it's just like, which I mean, uh, like yeah, I'm should, always thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> which it's like, I, no, certainly you can like feel bad for these characters, and I think that like the work that they're doing is difficult and oftentimes unpleasant, and that uh, Bonello is depicting that, but not at the expense of like character autonomy and that like they're not fully realized individuals. Yeah. There is one uh, prostitute in particular that is uh, like facially disfigured in the beginning of the movie. Um, she gets, uh, she meets this man who she's seen a few times who gives her the Joker smile 
okay. when they're like having sex. Like she gets, uh, I believe, tied up, and then he like pulls out a razor, is like playing with it in her mouth, Fuck. and like cuts cuts a Joker smile into her. <laughs> Um, and then she still, like, we jump a little bit further ahead in time, uh, but she's still there working at the brothel, um, less on the client facing side and more just sort of being with the gals. Um, but I, I don't know. You get a lot of like interesting characters here, a lot of focusing on like this time change and modernization and uh, I don't want to ruin anything about the end, but I feel like uh, Bonello uh, is looking towards the future very much so with the way he concludes the film. Uh, and it just looks beautiful. It's amazing. It's, uh, yeah, I don't know. The cinematography floored me. Um, and I, I just love the way he's able to compose a frame with just like, I, I, I don't know. I think he um, choreographs bodies very well. Um, there has been sort of a demon thought that has stuck in my mind since watching this movie and it's, uh, just clipping parts of house of tolerance, uh, to the whores in this house, uh, sample from a wet ass pussy. Um, obviously not again, it's a very, very poor taste. Uh, I don't even know I, what you're talking about. When you, when you said whores in this house, are you saying that that song samples the pixies? No, Is that no, no. Oh, okay. no, that's, I don't know, I don't know it's a Megan the Stallion song. Yeah. Yeah. With Who? Cardi B from like a couple years ago. Cardi B. You don't know Cardi B. That one. <laughs> I know. I know Playboy Cardi. No, no, this, these no, are no. Uh, famous women rappers, and the wet, you, you missed wet ass put. There was a lot of references and jokes to it, I guess. It, hmm. <laughs> well, maybe with JT, could he can make yeah, his maybe, edit. Maybe, and maybe, maybe, maybe I have to edit to get, even though it's a yeah. terrible poor taste, just to introduce <laughs> Eddie uh, to the culture. I'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about wet ass pussy sometime. Interesting. <laughs> we got a wet ass pussy episode coming up. <laughs> <laughs> WAP WAP it was like there was a lot of WAP WAP jokes that was a that happened like what like two years ago I can't even remember when that happened now but <laughs> oh I think I remember now yeah something about Star Wars I don't know that's uh, Ewok that's Ewok oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> just remembering other acronyms <laughs> Where they play baseball? Well, oh no, that's the MLB. Ewok is an acronym. <laughs> what would Ewok no, yeah, stand for? Those are that's real true. guys. That's yeah. true. Well, you, this happened. This this happened earlier in the week where I my Star Wars lack of Star Wars knowledge has come to bite me in the ass. You know, it. I gotta get. I gotta watch those movies. What happened? I want to know the story in life. It was just like a fucking in our group chat with the Star Wars. I can't even quite remember it now. Oh, okay. Um. What, were you triggered that I thought Star Wars is good? <laughs> no, no, it was like, um, no, I was triggered, of course. But uh, no, I think you, like, I, you, oh yeah, it was you, Eddie. Of course you caused the problem. It was, uh, it was, uh, we were talking about Monk, and I was like, damn, I was like psyched. And then I think you mentioned that Tom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you're saying. There was, yeah, yeah. okay, there was a reference to C3PO, <laughs> and you said that someone making a c3po reference was a complex star wars joke 
Well, this let me give you the context before to, to okay. Really I'll give the whole out. context so you no. don't mess it, mess up the the quote at least. Uh, yeah, we were talking about <laughs> Monk. Tom Sharpling, famous podcaster and writer, uh, was a producer and writer on Monk's entire run. He he gave a quote once saying that uh, the 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 younger people, the not like people who are not senior citizens who are fans of Monk, who he meets, are generally the type of people whose favorite character in Star Wars would be C-3PO. Interesting. Now, make of that what you will, you know, as a joke he's or whatever. He's calling them gay? I think he's calling them more, like, robotic, you know? See, it's unclear. JT was like, yeah. I don't quite... It's kind of unclear what that means when someone says, oh, I bet their favorite character is C-3PO in Star Wars. I don't know exactly what that's supposed to mean. You know what I mean? I've seen the movie before. He's like a gay golden robot who's like, oh, I got to... Do my task, you know. Um, I don't. I guess I didn't know what that. Well, I means. think I think you mean he's queer coded. Oh yeah. Well, no, he's gold coded. Um. <laughs> you can't take that queer code off. They put it on right at the factory. <laughs> it's two hundred extra for the queer code, but they put it right on at the factory. I can't do anything about that. <laughs> Oh God! Oh God! We've gone too far this time. Yeah, um, so, <laughs> let's let's get back to business here. <laughs> Whose fucking turn is it? I think, uh, I think Malcolm. Yeah, my How turn. Did we get on um, the Star Wars diversion. I don't even want to know. Another Star Wars reference. I think. Yeah. Oh, I didn't. I didn't understand Ewok. Which honestly, that was pretty bad. That one was way worse than the C three PO one. Actually, that was. Yeah, you bad. not you thinking Ewok <laughs> is an acronym is me is worse than me pretending to not know what wet ass pussy is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because you got to know Star Wars, right? Um, Robocop. <laughs> Robocop is the movie um, I chose. For the list. And I'd never seen Robocop before. I surprisingly enough, I've seen a lot of Verhoeven. You know, this is I think everyone listening knows, you know, what Robocop is, you know, uh dystopian Detroit. Michigan brings in a robot militarized police uh service and just the atmosphere of this movie is unmatched. Like, I love how everyone is such a piece of shit to each other in this movie and like uh like um just like the the rivalry amongst the businessmen at the corporation that's developing these RoboCops, and like just how they like, they snarl at each other. I, I, you know, there's a lot of great scenes in RoboCop. A lot of like like obviously like the the gang of bad guys that the RoboCop destroys with uh, the dad from that '70s show, and it you know that's a, a great moment with how depraved those uh, criminals are, and like the details and the production design and how creative it is and. Um, you know, just some of the action, great action, gory RoboCop kills. But to be honest, the scene I think about the most is uh, is when uh, I don't know. It's some. It's like it's a day at work, and um, you know, two competing uh, business peers, one older than the other, is you know, one guy's just talking shit on another business guy in the bathroom, and they overhear and they start fighting with each other, and just the cutthroat nature in which they dealt with each other. I, I've never quite felt that feeling uh, in, in a movie like I did with Robocop. Kind of just everything feels so uh, cutthroat and 
I, th- I think this is, I think I was checking through my diary, uh, my letterbox diary, not my personal day to day diary. Um, we don't talk and- about that diary on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the one thing I won't reveal is my the inner contents of my diary. And it has like a little lock heart on it, but yeah, this is, I think this is the, the only movie I gave that I hadn't seen before five stars just because, um, I don't know, just, I, I was blown away by this. This is a movie. I, I have a thing where I feel like there's some movies I watch like every year, kind of like I'm like a yearly watch. I feel like RoboCop is going to enter that canon. Like I got to see this at least once a year for a little while, just cause I don't know. I, I loved it so much. RoboCop was something that I was really hesitant towards like going in where it's just like, I feel like, it has kind of, or at least maybe a little bit less so now, because mm-hmm. I feel like there's more like Verhoeven autorism or whatever. But I feel like initially it's kind of in the realm of like midnight movie guys, kind of that that True. atmosphere where I was like, I was held off at first because I was like, oh, is this going to be like one of those so bad it's good kind of like bullshit like things but no it's just one of those like just absolutely has the reputation it has for an amazing reason i agree like verhoven like his american films in particular i think are so cynical and mean we need to do a hollow man episode because that is even (laughs) like just nastier and meaner than RoboCop. Obviously not as good of a movie, but I'd say still a great one. He was like on a toeback flow with that one, right? Uh-oh. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. Yes, there is a toeback <laughs> style flow in Hollow Man. Uh, but yeah, no, RoboCop just uh, amazing. True, true blue classic. Absolutely. I Supposed love RoboCop and becoming a yearly thing is perfect for that that's yeah i love that uh there's also the scene bitches leave yeah bitches yeah, yeah. leave yeah <laughs> so that was i i don't know did you see the behind the scenes video for that malcolm paul is dutch and Joost vacano uh, uh the cinematographer is german and i don't believe that paul knew during that evening that bitches was a pejorative term for females we were getting ready to do the scene and so we were kind of blocking it out and paul says yeah then yeah, Cartwright says, bitches leave, then the bitches leave, uh, and bitches, uh, then you leave when he says that. And um, then he says, no, wait, bitches, don't leave, wait. Um, Jost, what do you think? Uh, should uh, bitches leave when he says, bitches leave, or should they wait for him to make a motion? Jost goes, mm, the bitches should leave. Yeah, bitches. Bitches, you leave when... <laughs> Miguel and I are just sitting there cracking up. And the bitches, they, they didn't seem to have a problem with it at all. You know, they were like, okay, fine, sure. Very good. Thank you, bitches. Very good. That's a wrap on the bitches. Thank you very much, bitches. How you doing? Uh, uh, uh. Bitches leave. <laughs> and he's just like i'm gonna go with it i guess and it becomes like yeah. so over the top and funny in that moment and there's so many moments that are just iconic i mean the the unveiling of the robocop oh, the cold yeah. open that's... that's i think one of the greatest origins of all time like in terms of a cold open setting up the world of a movie and what the movie's gonna be about like i still have robocop at like a high four or whatever 
Uh, and I think I'll probably bump it up next time I watch it if I see it like on a in a theater or something. I feel like every mm-hmm. time I watch that movie, it's just suboptimal conditions. First time yeah. was like on a computer screen, you know. Mm, um, yeah. But yeah, it's just so fucking fun, dude. Like the, the, it's it's one of the funniest Verhovens. Absolutely. The way like uh, this sounds. This is you know might be much, but. The way like the bullets like like the way bullets hit skin in that movie, it's like damn, I want to shoot someone, man. Like this is a this is a fucking like this like this this the violence on display here is just it's it's definitely taking it's you know it's dystopic, but it's like taking you know perverse glee in it, and it's so good. It's so good. Back to a little reading from a friend, uh, our friend Kane. You can check out his work in plenty of places that he writes. Uh, he's a great journalist. Uh, our friend Kane says. Good movies. Hello, Extended Clip Boys. It's Kane. Here are five good older movies I watched for the first time this year. Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill. The kind of movie that would have a terrible letterboxed review that would say, the director said cut, but the stars heard cunt. Uh, Scantily clad evil women doing martial arts, racing fast cars, pulling off heists and killing men. It's a good time. I agree. I watched that one in film school, and seeing Faster Pussycat with a film school audience ruled. They hated it uh list samurai i'm still really annoyed that one of the coolest movies ever has a protagonist named jeff it couldn't have been a cool french name like hugo or antoine or andre or something it had to be jeff <laughs> it's a very good point uh, another one i watched in film school uh perdita durango a sailor and lula adaptation from mexico where the whole thing is one big dead baby joke james gandolfini cgi morphs into gary cooper uh, which is crazy because of the Sopranos connection, of course. Uh, and it's not even in the top 10 wildest thing that happens in this movie. Lots of people walked out during my showing. Sorcerer. How the fuck did they film that shit on the bridge? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, three women. Altman is goaded and I adored this, but nine months later, I still don't really have any idea what it's about other than the obvious persona inspirations and that they killed and buried that guy. Well, Kane, I would say go back and list our episode on three women because <laughs> I think... We did a decent job diving into that movie. I rewatched it again since then, and it's, yeah, it, it it is a it is a very convoluted movie on the surface, but the the plotting is actually very broad. Uh, there's really only a few things that do happen, really, when you think about it. So uh, that that's a good thing to keep in mind, I guess. But thank you uh, for Kane's email. There, moving on to my next choice, I'm gonna go with Mishma. A Life in Four Chapters by Paul Hell Schrader. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, this was like the big Schrader I hadn't seen. I wanted to do more mm-hmm. of the blind spots this year and didn't. I don't know why. This didn't have anything to do with it because I watched it pretty late in the year. And uh, yeah, it's probably the best portrait of an artist movie. I can't think of another movie about art and creation, specifically about one artist that does it justice. Every biopic about an artist pretty much stinks. <laughs> There's some good ones out there, but like they're usually not about that artist's individuality. They're usually just like, and it's an achievement in dramatic filmmaking or something. Uh, so I think Mishima is just a perfect uh, encapsulation of what I know about him. You know, I did my research a little and I read like The Sailor Who Fell from Grace to the Sea and I read a lot about Mishima. And I just think that the whole time I was researching him before I watched the movie, uh, for the sake of the novel, I picked that novel up just because the cover looked awesome. Uh, the Sailor, that is. And uh, from that moment, I was just like, oh, 
Schrader is the most one-to-one guy for this, no matter what. The weird repressed sexuality and kind of conservatism and I just uh, and the the poetics that can come uh, into it is just like so good. And uh, yeah, I just I, I think that Mishima is it's one of those movies where obviously Schrader as the artist of the movie is doing so much, but also it's one of the great collaborative movies. Uh, the score by Philip Glass. How can you compete with that score? That is one of my favorite pieces of film score ever. Uh, you have some of the greatest set design I can like I'm going full superlative mode, you know. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's hard not to because the set design is exactly what you want. There's a reason why Lucas and Coppola were executive producers on this to kind of help bolster him to get this huge vision accomplished. Uh, I'm trying to look at who the production designer is on this, and I can't see on uh, what's it called. Uh, well, Kazu Tananaka uh, is the art director, and Eiko. Ishioka is the production designer and John Bailey is the cinematographer uh, and Paul and Leonard Schrader together uh, adapted the stories. So it's it's really a collaboration of a bunch of different people zoning in on one artist, but specifically Schrader as director at the helm because he has such a deep personal collection yeah, connection there that is to his work. Uh, you guys have seen Mishima, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. I I have to I have to be a dickhead here. I remember you publicly stating like Trader's good, but he doesn't have a movie that's over like three and a half stars. And you know, the, I didn't the say court, that. I didn't four go stars, that far. four stars. Yes, four I probably star. said over. Okay, four. I, yeah. I, I missed. I misspoke. I misspoke. Sorry, sorry. Um, everyone, you know, people told you to watch Mishaba, and I'm glad that. It lived up to the hype, you know. What I mean, because I feel like it—that is, in my mind, kind of Schrader's masterpiece. Like, I feel like um, that movie kind of is just above the rest, you know, in a way. And even with like the most mainstream of biopics, like you see in Maestro, like there's a tendency to like figure out like the biopic convention, you know what I mean? And like kind of like reorganize it because there's a, you know, rightfully so, a lot of people are kind of tired of the cliches of like a classic biopic and like the formatting of like taking, you know, uh, works from his book and intercutting it with his personal life. I just, I don't know. It's such a good um, format amongst, you know, other things that, yeah, it's just, it, it truly feels like a masterwork. Hello, this is Ryan Swen. Thank you for inviting me to talk about one of my favorite films that I saw for the first time this year. I want to talk about 2001's That Old Dream That Moves, directed by Alain Girardi who's most famous for directing Stranger by the Lake. And this is another sort of examination of a uh, gay milieu, I guess you could say. Uh, this time it's looking at a uh, a factory that's due to be shut down and largely charts the way that a newcomer tasked with assisting in this teardown uh, interacts uh, with his fellow workers. And I just find that way that it captures the sort of strange utopian nature of it, all the little furtive gestures, flirtations, and uh, even though there isn't really much consummation, I think that the that just the way that he captures it is, is very moving and uh, very erotic. And I think that it's a very wonderful film and very short, only 51 minutes, but it seems to contain... Uh, 
like just the, the way that a, a, an entire world, an entire little society can operate. I think it's wonderful for that. Um, thank you for inviting me. Working for Postmates, you had to hand it directly to the person. So yeah, pretty pretty. Uh, we live in a crazy new world. Pretty pretty sick handoff exchange. You know what I mean? Like they're definitely like kind of just like putting their hand out the door. You know, I don't blame them. But um, uh, no, but it's it's easier like. To be honest, I guess I've never really had too much trouble with that. Like people complaining about what I've chosen, um, you know, or I didn't get the nicest bananas or whatever. But um, mm. it's more like delivering in the city. It's like, especially like if you're delivering up to apartments, it's like it's this weird game of like they got to let me into the apartment building or are they trying to meet me down there? Are they trying to like get me to deliver directly to their door? Or are they going to? Oh, yeah. Or like in like. And like sometimes they don't even put what, so it's like, like I have to contact them to get them in the gate. You know, it's it's not the hardest thing in the world, obviously, but it's like when it comes to that job, that's like thirty five percent of the logistics of it is like getting to the place, and you know. So with this, you know, delivering here, it's just I go up to the door and hand it to them. You know what I mean? So that's it. It honestly it simplifies things a, a good amount. So yeah, nothing nothing crazy, just just working. Right on. I went to this concert the other week. It was uh, Mike and Wiki, these rappers, and uh, I didn't know the opener. And the opener was like a like some shoegaze band and like a hardcore band. So it was just kind of a it was a cool night of just like just three different genres. And yeah, like, no, that's wild. I yeah. feel like you very rarely get that experience from like the opener, like mm-hmm. uh, uh, like the closest thing I feel like I could come to. Which is not even all that different, but I saw mm-hmm. the like band Ice Age. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. like sometimes like shows in their like basement um and then it was ice age and then like one more like like hardcore thing where there's a lot of thrashing and then one just noise project that was just a guy (laughs) just twiddling around uh up there and that was i mean i really only enjoyed ice age but it was nice (laughs) to get the full experience of like okay we're, we're trying something different here every time Harsh noises that that's kind of like the final frontier of like that's like the most complicated art house movie equivalent or something like that. Like a it's it's not even like I can enjoy yeah. things that kind of veer in that direction. Yeah. But particularly at a live performance as well. Yeah. Like there and just there's I know I, I, I wouldn't really say that it's a friend of mine, but someone I worked at a cafe with in college uh, she went to like U Chicago for grad school and is mm-hmm. doing like noise music performances, <laughs> and it's just like her like like I don't know putting uh, I don't know what are the like jumper cable style things and like yeah. making a lot of like weird unpleasant discordant sounds and like screaming and it's just like <laughs> there's like there's got to be like five people that like this and like <laughs> want to go to this it's just like why would you i mean again i'm in the a niche world of film as well but it's just like there are probably 30 people like i yeah. don't like being that deep like 
being noise to the point where it's not even music really is like it's just screaming like yeah it's just like (laughs) this is for two people (laughs) it's funny it's funny like see someone you know doing that they're like okay that's what they're up to cool jt is your homie making uh, noise music this is just someone i worked at a cafe with uh, oh okay i've seen her her noise career blossom jt disavows is her noise popping off uh, not, I mean, I guess she's doing as things, much as noise can pop off. It, yeah, yeah, it's doing things, but not like I don't. Again, it's. I was saying to Malcolm, it's just like it's such a niche path to go down. That's like I don't know yeah. why you would decide that. <laughs> yeah, it's like all the guys on film Twitter that make like Stan Brackage homage movies. You know, <laughs> like very very niche audience you got there, brother. Yeah, brother, do it for the love. This is Spencer Ryder. The best film I discovered this year. Discovered sounds silly because I didn't discover this movie. I just watched it when I had a couple hours to spare. But the best new to me release in 2023 was Mike Lee's Topsy Turvy. I'm not a Gilbert and Sullivan aficionado. I'm not a huge opera guy in general. In fact, I even in the musicals I like... Patter songs are generally my least favorite part, but you do not need to be a fan of any of those things in order to appreciate this movie. This is a stone masterpiece about creative work, collaboration, what it means to work with someone else over a long period of time, what it means to make art for the public, art for the critics, and art for yourself. And it's just a superb you know, backstage ensemble piece. If you're interested in the nitty gritty of how art gets made, I cannot recommend this highly enough. The best scene in the movie involves one of the two. I'm too lazy to look up. One of either Gilbert or Sullivan just going through and drilling his performers bit by bit, line by line, inflection by inflection. And you get a sense of why people are such perfectionists when it comes to the work they make. It's also filled with superb acting because it's a Mike Lee film. And it's just such an absorbing experience. It's one of the best theater movies ever made up there with Cassavetti's opening night. So highly, highly recommended. Even if the subject matter sounds boring, it is anything but. 
and you should go out and watch it. Now, on to someone who actually watched some movies this year and is likely going to uh, unearth some obscure masterpiece from 1967 instead of talking about something that was uh, an Oscar nominee. Next, I am going to uh, talk about a dear friend of ours, and uh, that friend is uh, Woody Allen, <laughs> but uh, by way of uh, Philip Roth. I uh, uh, watched uh, Deconstructing Harry for the first time this year um, after uh, finishing uh, Portnoy's Complaint. Um, and just like beautiful, beautiful combo there. And uh, again, I feel like I've read it in a lot of reviews uh, of this movie. I think Will Sloan in particular. But it's so weird. 90s Woody cussing. Like that's just like. <laughs> It's like I had uh, a, a, like grandparents of mine who had never said a naughty word in their life, and then just like hear it, just like walking into the room and hearing them say like "cunt." It's like whoa, like what are you doing, man? Like that's crazy. You can't talk um, about blowjobs in a Woody Allen movie. Yeah, no, it's wild, and uh, I mean, it's fun to see him go like. 90s American independent like sort of uh, I mean not really I doubt he's riffing off of any of that <laughs> but like to have more of that 90s grunge edge to him and also do work that's like um, engaging with Roth but obviously the very autobiographical nature of his own work um, just how that impacts people and it's insanely fucking funny. Like, the idea of, like, culminating in him kidnapping his son with a prostitute uh, to, like, go accept, like, an award at a university uh, at the end is such such a goofy, like, turn of events that, like, Woody definitely, like, is playing the comedy there as well but it's also like like it's sad like the way the course of the harry character goes particularly at the end where it's him sort of with all of the fictional characters uh that he's created and them sort of being (laughs) like his comfort is both like something where it's just like i don't know like it certainly feels to me a little bit like woody is playing this as kind of a positive thing but it's so sad too. So I, I don't know. It's definitely one of my favorite Woody's, but it's one of those where uh, there are a few more in his catalog that I haven't seen yet that are the last like huge good ones that I haven't seen that I'm just waiting to to get around to. Um, and I'm glad I saved Harry for after I had to read uh, read Roth first. Yeah, I mean, the year of Roth is upon us. Uh, I I would say (laughs) 2022 was my year of Roth. 2023, I don't think I read anything by him. So 24, I got to get back at it and knock out like the... uh, I have like five books of his that I haven't read yet on my shelf. Uh, Well, technically they're in boxes right now. But yeah, I think that's like my reading slowed way down the last like three months of the year. And I think Roth is the easiest way for me to just get right back into it. Malcolm. Well, you know what? I'm going to throw you a curve. Speaking of Philip Roth, what is... And you don't have to go deep on it at all because i'm not you didn't expect this what's your favorite book you read this year 
Uh, well, you know what? It's probably, um, I only read a couple. It's probably also Portnoy's Complaint. I read Portnoy's Complaint literally for the first time this year. And, uh, I think I'd seen Deconstructing Harry before that, but I'd read other Roth, um, really did not read as much as I wanted to this year. Um, like you were saying, but yeah, I, I, uh, I, I, you know, it's funny. I realize, like, with books, I really am attracted to kind of like these neurotic narrators that kind of give it like a frenetic pace. You know what I mean? And like, because I feel like, um, like Holbeck could be like that a little. Yeah, bit. Yeah, I was gonna say this, Michelle yeah. Holbeck is like that. Yeah. And that's an author that just feels very easy for me to like just read. And Roth feels like that, where it's just like it's just so natural, like natural of a a fit. I'm just so entertained and. uh yeah, Portnoy's complaint was uh, fantastic. Like I loved, uh, yeah, just the pacing of the characters, like inner dialogue and like the, just kind of like the temperament of the character and how he expresses himself. You know, it's I enjoyed it. I got to get back on Welbeck. Speaking of that, I read whatever last year I think, uh, or maybe in January of this year. I don't remember, but that one is a killer like and one of the funniest uh narrator characters i've come across in literature so uh definitely something i want to get back to for sure um but malcolm do you have another movie you wanted to talk about before we sign off here yeah as we, uh, start to settle down for the evening and the year well i want to talk about scalpel and i want to give credit to mr john grissomer the director of this movie a lot of people talk about uh night of the hunter right Charles Lawton, he went one for one, made one movie, and it was perfect. Um, John Grismer, he went two for two. He he directed Scalpel, which I'm a big fan of, and he also directed uh, a great one of the great slashers, uh, Blood Rage, from 1987. And uh, Scalpel is the plot of that is we have a uh, another another crazy doctor. We got a psychotic plastic surgeon who finds a woman who's been brutalized uh, and, you know, kind of left on the street for abandon, you know, so like a, I think uh, possibly a sex worker who'd been beat up by a client and he kind of takes, takes, uh, takes her in and reconstructs her face. But, you know, the face he decides to use looks exactly like his, uh, you know, thought to be deceased daughter or missing daughter. And then, you know, halfway throughout the movie, the daughter shows up and uh, there's just a lot of complications. And obviously the surgeon is in trouble. And I don't, like there's just a particular uh, mood and like style to this movie that I found very unique, uh, really embraces uh, kind of like a daylight horror, sun-soaked horror vibe and kind of uh, um, the psychotic surgeon character is a really great. And uh, it's also shot by uh, Ed Lockman, um, you know, who's a you know pretty well-known cinematographer. So um, it just—it's a really well-shot movie with just kind of a sadistic, uh, you know, sense of plotting. And uh, yeah, I really, I really liked it. Scalpel. All right, as we wrap up here, I'm going to talk about one more movie. But before that, let's hear from a chorus, uh, just a fucking murderer's row. This isn't like ba- the bottom of the lineup. This is like when in the eighth inning, you're facing the 891, you know, and you're like, oh, my God, I can't believe we escaped that. But fuck me. We got two, three, four in the bottom of the ninth to close this out. How are we going to go up against the boys from Bleeding Edge in Toronto? 
Hey fellas, uh, Ethan Vespi here. I just wanted to recommend uh, one film I watched this year in particular. That is uh, Jekyll and Hyde Together Again from 1982, directed by Jerry Belson. Uh, this film came to my attention uh, via Mike Belandich. Uh, I believe it's screened recently in, in New York on a, a 16 millimeter print at uh, the Roxy Cinema. But I, uh, being that our rep scene here in Toronto is, is not the kind of one that, uh, that will do screenings like that. I, I made a, I made an effort to seek out the film myself. Uh, now this is a really like outrageous comedy, uh, from the early 1980s. Uh, politically incorrect to say the least. Uh, curiously produced by Joel Silver before his kind of uh, action heyday of Lethal Weapon and Die Hard. Uh, but I really recommend this film. It, it's it's really uh, bolstered by an incredible leading man performance by Mark Blankfield, who I admittedly was not really familiar with uh, before the film. Uh, this film, it's also, I think, maybe you, all three of you as uh, Los Angelinos, I, th- I believe that's a term I used on the... Uh, the episode about the Delosi film. <laughs> I can't remember if that's a correct term, Los Angelinos, but you'll really appreciate it too. I think as a survey of uh, early 1980s Los Angeles, uh, something I had an extra appreciation for uh, having read Brad Easton Ellis's uh, most recent book, The Shards, which depicts that time period in the city. So Jekyll and Hyde together again. I won't even say that much more about it because I don't want to ruin just how funny and crazy this movie is. But uh, I actually think it would be a good subject for a future episode. Uh, I want to talk about an auteur whose uh, work I delved into this year. His name is Joe Swanberg. Um, And he may not be very good, but he he sure made a lot. Uh, And really, you know, what have you done with your life? Uh, I started watching all of his movies after listening to a keynote speech he did at South by Southwest in 2016, I think, where he said, uh, among a lot of other things, he said, you know, one way to get noticed is to make good movies, but another way to get noticed is to just make a lot of movies, so we know which decision he made. Um, but, you know, when you when you watch his movies with that in mind, they really kind of open themselves up to you. Like, you watch it and you go, how many setups were in this this 15-minute scene of two, you know, young 20-something people fighting with each other. Uh, how, how many setups were there? And the answer is probably two, if that. Um, or you might look at, like, a party scene that he filmed and you realize all he needed was a, a strobe light and a solo cup, and, and that's it. You know, it tells the audience what it needs to know. There's a party, and this, uh, this woman was at it. Uh, you might also wonder how his wife feels about uh, filming a graphic sex scene while pregnant. And uh, I guess they're divorced now, so that might be your answer. Um, and you could also ask yourself, do I need to see Kent Osborne's dick again? And your answer doesn't matter because there it is. There it is. There's his dick again. Um, you know, some of these movies are, are worse. Some of the movies are better than others. Uh, but it's really like the totality of it that matters. Uh, he... he Swanberg created a career for himself out of sheer persistence and an ability to convince attractive but slightly alternative actresses to take their clothes off on camera. But personally, I find his work inspiring because you know he knows it's not all good, but he put it out there anyway. 
it's a, it's a great cure for any sort of like perfectionist or self-conscious feelings that you might have about your art. Um, if you're embarrassed by something you've made, you know, whether it's a movie or a song or a podcast, uh, I think you should just ask yourself, what would Joe Swanberg do? And then go ahead and put it out into the world to be ridiculed by all of your peers. Oh, yeah. I kind of forgot. Also, there's this guy who does this podcast about Frederick Wiseman. I don't know why you would do that. Like, those movies. Yeah, real broad audience for that one, buddy. Uh, let's see what he says. Hey, Extended Clip family. It's Sean Glennis. Uh, happy end of year. We made it through another one. Uh, but we did it together. You know, I, I think... Um, Personally, I, I I know I was a shoulder to cry on, I think, for each of you at, at different times um, of the year, whether it was Eddie and his gambling addiction, Malcolm and his separation anxiety on the West Coast, um, or JT questioning his sexuality. Um, but we made it, and I'm proud of you guys. Um, as for... Uh, the best old movies that I watched this year, uh, I watched Howard Hawks' 1948 Red River. Uh, check it out if you haven't seen it. Okay, Sean. Uh, I, you know, look, that one, I gotta say, we didn't hear it live, so I'm guessing he used some of his classic sardonic dry wit. Uh, they should call him Dry Wit Stillman. <laughs> Yeah, they should. That was a good. Yeah, they should call him that. <laughs> I'm going to talk about the last days of disco uh, by Wet Wit Stillman. <laughs> what? <laughs> wet Wit Stillman? Yeah, we're going to have a Wet Wit Stillman contest. <laughs> There's something really sexy about Scrooge McDuck. You really think so? love uncle scrooge so last oh, days as disco. you can tell it's getting way <laughs> too late here and by that i mean 7 p.m local time and i'm getting delirious mm-hmm. um last days of disco oh how the times have changed we did an episode on metropolitan four years ago and that was the first time we really had a fracas on the podcast where you know there was stuff just like i i hate this movie i like this movie i think this movie's okay and i was the one who didn't like metropolitan i wasn't ready for it i wasn't ready for Whit stillman and as the years have gone by i've like been like hey, you know maybe i would like those movies and then i watched barcelona and it was just blown away and last days of disco as well but then i rewatched the last days of disco in a theater and it really hit home the uh the sense of like somewhere in between a party movie and like an eric romare conversational movie it's it's a thinker's party movie it's a it's a movie that it's a party movie that's quiet enough a party slash club movie that's quiet enough to give you room to think it's for the people who want to go out and have a good time and listen to music but also want to have a little time to take in the atmosphere and think about the time and place that they're in uh whether it's like in history or in their own lives uh and i i think it's a really ambitious film for that it's a very literary film obviously the you know, the girls work at a literary office but uh it, it, i feel like each character has a 500 page novel written about them in what stillman's head he gives them so much love as characters even when he kind of looks down on them for some of their behavior he's one of the most generous directors of actors i can think of and you know i'm not schmoozing uh you know he would say that's all on the actors you know uh, and Chris Eichmann, he is it 
Chris Eichmann is him the in man. this movie. Like he's absolutely him. And uh, Chloe Sevigny, I mean, the Scrooge McDuck line, it doesn't get much better than that. Like that is truly one of the best jokes in cinema. And uh, so, yeah, I, I just think that like his uh, obsession with 30s movies reinforces the kind of screwball setup that that railroad apartment they live in has. But then there's also this kind of modernist mid-century style character exploration and kind of eternal human themes found in unlikely places. And I, I just think it's a lovely movie. Uh, the last days of disco, everyone, and the last days of extended clip for this week. Uh, that was a very fun episode. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you on the Christmas special with J- uh, James Toback and Will Sloan. <laughs> Any final words, guys? What a year it was in movie watching. I think I think we're going to go even harder next year. You know what I mean? Uh, so, yeah. We're going to keep doing our thing. Uh, happy holidays. Uh, be sure you watch Fingers with your family uh, <laughs> before next uh, the next episode, just so you're ready. I think your family is going to love a Mr. James Toback. <laughs> <laughs>